Hi everyone, welcome to Financial Planning Conversations, the podcast about giving great financial advice and matching people with the right investments. I'm your host, Craig Saunders. Today we're going to bust the top 10 myths around financial risk tolerance. It's a subject that just about everybody knows something about, but a lot of what people think is fact is really fiction. We'll have an expert join us in a moment to sort one from the other. But first, this program is brought to you by Plan Plus, a leading global supplier of financial advice tools, including Plan Plus Planet, My Plan Plus, and Finometrica, which is a risk tolerance profiling tool. Paul Resnick from Plan Plus is one of the founders of that Finometrica test, and he's going to be guiding us through today's myth busting. Paul, welcome back. Good day, mate. Now, Paul. As I said, risk tolerance is an area that a lot of people think they know, but as you often find, what they think they know is often not correct. What, what, what they know is they know the word risk tolerance, and unfortunately they haven't had the time or the inclination to, uh, to do any detailed work. So they, and they go on their instincts. So we, we all use uh, Kahneman System 1 thinking. Um, they work in, uh, in financial services. They know what the word risk tolerance means. They don't... Uh, don't have time to uh, to see the subtleties and nuances that uh, people like us have, have discovered over time. So, so largely, uh, we are like ships in the night. But doesn't it sort of leave us in in that that post-Trumpian world of alternative facts, where where people are using one label to describe things that are very very different? I'm afraid it does. Um, it, it requires an effort on behalf of uh, of both of us. So we need to work harder at communicating with. Uh, with advisors and the firms they work with and show them the benefits of paying a little more attention to getting the definitions right. And we need people to, uh, at the other end, to, to, to be uh, interested in listening. Um, fortunately, the global regulators of good advice uh, are very keen that um, recommendations meet the needs of, uh, of clients. And uh, part of that is understanding risk tolerance and uh, much of what we do is actually for the benefit of businesses because uh, um, when a client um, has a portfolio that meets their needs, they, uh, they're less likely to be, uh, to be unhappy and uh, are more likely to, uh, to deal with the vicissitudes of booms and crashes a little better. So uh, there's a joint benefit of doing it well. So this list of 10 myths comes from an article that you recently published and you've been tweeting about. Now, myth one is that risk tolerance is variable, so it rises and falls along with moves in the market. Now, I know that's an, that's an opinion that many people hold, but Paul, what do the facts tell us? Um, risk tolerance is a personality trait, and uh, as we know, personality traits tend to be uh, fairly, fairly sticky. They tend not to change over time, and it is the same with risk tolerance. So what people mistake is clients' behaviour. Um, clearly, when markets are booming, they're investing, and when markets are crashing, they're, they're contemplating uh, bailing out, and they're, fair, and they're fairly miserable. Um, so it's perception of risk that changes when markets move, which results in clients' behaviour changing. But generally, risk tolerance tends not to change. We've now done uh, over a million, 1.1 million tests since 1998 through all sorts of market movements. And we can show quite categorically that uh, the average risk tolerance score of uh, people completing a Finometrica test on a monthly basis uh, 
barely changes before and after major corrections. Nonetheless, we do know that people go through emotional experiences as, as their investments fluctuate in value. But you'd say those emotions are just noise around risk tolerance and they're not actually changing risk tolerance. Yes, it's not changing risk tolerance. It's certainly changing behaviour. The critical issue for all of us is to make use of what we learn to, uh, to better manage clients' and clients' expectations. So um, uh, let me give you a very simple example. If you know that a client has a low risk tolerance but needs to take a fair amount of risk to achieve their goals, um, you wouldn't put them into a portfolio of direct equities and tell them they can see the share price movement on a daily basis. Um, we know from prospect theory that for every dollar lost, you need two, three or four dollars gained just to have the same emotional uh, balance. Um, so why put people through that? So one of the critical things to do is understanding the uniqueness of your client, make sure that the portfolio recommendations are consistent with the way they may see the world. So if you've got a low risk tolerant person, as I was saying, then give them a portfolio that doesn't necessarily um, take out um, high equity exposure, but reduces the experience of that high equity exposure by discouraging them from looking at uh, individual items in it. And if you're in Australia, we would say put them in an, an industry super fund which reports a year in arrears. Now, myth two is another widely held one, that people's appetite for risk holds constant across all parts of their lives. And so that would mean that for someone like me who likes to drive excessively fast, which I do, people would take that to tell them something about my level of financial risk tolerance. But, Paul, the data doesn't support that. It certainly doesn't. Um, and I, as you say that, I remember asking you to stop the car because I was feeling sick on one of your uh, escapades around some mountain roads. You're not the first, won't be the last. There are at least three, four, and maybe more different risk tolerances. They're not correlated. So they're physical, the one we've just talked about. They're social, ethical, and financial. And just because you're high in one might not be that you're, you're high in another. So there's no necessary uh, um, relationship between uh, the four different sorts of risk tolerance. Now, myth three is a complex one. This, this myth says that risk tolerance determines asset allocations. And what makes it complex and tricky is because risk tolerance certainly informs asset allocation to some degree. But you say that it's part of a wider process called risk profiling. So it's not just saying you're a certain number, which means you're a certain portfolio. Explain to me the difference between using a raw number to match somebody and a wider risk profiling process. Well, clearly risk tolerance is a psychological preference. It's not, it's not a financial preference, and nor does it measure or take into account an individual's capacity for loss. So to give you a simple example, I may have a very low risk tolerance. Um, I, may, um, I may need to take a high exposure to equities to achieve my goal. Um, and uh, at the other end, I may, uh, I may have no capacity or very limited capacity to deal with volatility and uncertainty because I'm in retirement and need uh, a regular drawdown, which is beyond it, the portfolio's natural income. Um, low risk tolerance, high equity need, low capacity. What's the right answer? Well, that's where the collaboration with the client and client ownership um, of the plan and the recommendation comes into play. You will remember, as many of our readers and listeners, 
we talk about the four proofs and the final one of the four proofs is of course uh, um, you're getting you're asking for your clients informed consent to the risk they're taking on in their plan from the um, investment product if that's part of it that uh, that you've recommended. Now, Myth 4 says that um, a test like Finometrica is really just a subjective exercise. You guys ask some questions, but then you interpret the measurements according to your own rules. Why are people wrong when they believe that? We've applied the science of psychometrics, a combination of statistics and psychology, um, to, to do two things, to make sure that what we're, what we're uh, surveying is in fact risk tolerance and that when we retest people that we get a, uh, a consistent answer. Um, so we are valid and reliable. Um, alternate mechanisms and the classic one would be um, gamble questions that we see in the marketplace where, where uh, we're asking people to calculate their preference for upside versus downside with a short-term goal of, say, six months out, clearly are neither valid, that is, we don't think they're a measure of risk tolerance, and they're very unlikely to be reliable. That is, in a retest, we think the answers are, are going to be different, and that's because uh, in many cases people will be guessing the answer because the calculation is too hard to do. The, the research, and I think all of our experience, tells us that um, most most of us are not capable of doing complicated mathematics and um, age doesn't enhance that, it does the opposite. As we get older, our capacity to do calculations, certainly probabilistic calculations, diminishes. So, um, so what we measure is valid and reliable. We think um, what other tests do is not, are neither valid nor reliable. Now, Myth 5 says we don't need anyone's stupid test. We can just do this ourselves because we're financial advisors and we know what people's risk tolerance is. But, Paul, that race has been run and won, and who won it? Well, it's been won by, uh, by the regulator. Um, the regulator says you've got to find some method of doing it. You've got to prove that, uh, that what you do is capable of being assessed um, you've got to do a due diligence on it and be able to assess its uh, strengths and weaknesses and compensate for the weaknesses. So if you apply a subjective assessment as a professional, as you might do, you have to be fairly certain that you are um, assessing people accurately and validly. Um, so you're, you're caught um, by the regulator's preference for, uh, for doing it with some rigour. Um, you'll need to be able to um, benchmark it against um, a valid and reliable test to prove that what you're doing is valid and reliable. Um, what we've seen when we've gone back and talked with advisors who've, uh, who've given us the opportunity to talk with them and to then assess their clients' risk tolerance, that classic stereotyping occurs. If it's a male, generally the preference is to push and suggest that male has a higher risk tolerance than he, he might have. If it's a female, the reverse happens. The stereotype says females have a lower risk tolerance, so there's a uh, predisposition to suggest she's got a, a lower risk tolerance. Um, either way, male or female um, professional advisors run the risk of getting it wrong. In the statistical case we did, we found it was wrong one in six times 
by more than one standard deviation. So if you're doing that and you're no different from our uh, research group, 15% of your clients are in the wrong risk group. And you've brought us to another myth there, which is the myth that you can test a couple jointly on, on one instrument rather than having them each do their own test. And I think you just explained really well why that why that can't be done. But myth six is another mixing up where you'll see risk tolerance tests out there and they, they ask you a question or two about risk tolerance, but then they ask you a question or two about your risk capacity and maybe even a question or two about your risk required. And they're all in the one test. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, clearly, um, risk tolerance is a, is a psychological preference personality. And if the questions are around circumstance, you're, you're mixing apples and oranges. Um, the, the, the algorithm, the, the professional judgment you apply, um, is the thing that allows you to, uh, to tease out the differences. And you asked me that question early on in the case, and we talked about somebody with a low risk tolerance, but... Uh, a high need for, for risk in their portfolios. So you've got to separate the pieces out so you can illustrate them to the client and get their informed consent. And of course, um, goes back to the previous question, it is highly likely that um, if, if you're in a couple, one will have a higher risk tolerance than the other. And of course, they'll have different goals and aspirations and perhaps capacity. Now, myth seven takes us inside the building blocks of risk tolerance to ask what is relevant. And, and the myth says that an investor's age, investment time frame and retirement date are all relevant to risk tolerance. But, Paul, you say they're not. Well, clearly they're not. Um, some people at age 70 or 80 uh, have a similar risk tolerance to the people who are 20 or 30. The, the, their issues are much more what do they want to do with the money. At 70 or 80, they might say, gosh, what I want to do is maximise the certainty that I've got income for the rest of my life. I might buy an annuity. If, on the other hand, because, um, of course, at 70 or closer to 80, annuity payments become uh, quite significant um, because of longevity calculations. Um, on the other hand, if the intent is for an inheritance, then there'd be no reason to de-risk the portfolio at all particularly if there was no expectation of, uh, of withdrawing anything more than the natural income distribution that occurs in the portfolio. So um, I, I think that cliché horses for courses um, prevails. I think many people, though, would say, hang on, this, there's got to be something in this about age and time frame and whether you're retired or not, but could it be that they, it's more impacting on risk capacity and risk required? I believe so. Um, risk required is... It, is clearly at its simplest level, um, what what equity exposure do you need to take to give yourself the greatest likelihood of achieving your goal, um, assuming that uh, you're using reasonable capital market assumptions and the, uh, the client's needs fall within the range of possible returns between zero exposure to equities and property and 100% of equities and property, um, that, that, that's the driver of uh, of that discussion. Myth eight 
is a little bit complex and it makes me reminisce on, on the old Kung Fu TV show of, of, of many decades past where the student would be seeking guidance from the teacher. The myth says that risk tolerance drives risk behaviour, which on this face sounds quite reasonable, until on my journey I meet somebody who tests with a very, very high score and yet they're 100% invested in cash and then I come to you and I say, Master, tell me what is going on. Ah, well, this shows the complexity of life, doesn't it? Uh, risk tolerance is a useful input into uh, into asset allocation, but as we talked earlier, it may not be the dominant one. It just needs to be taken into account. Um, so uh, it's risk capacity, risk required, which which are the uh, which need to be taken into account. And interestingly enough, we, we've just finished doing a, a survey where we looked at to a, a group of advisors who were part of one group who were servicing a particular professional body. So a relatively homogenous, centralised process. And we asked them to prioritise which of the three major um, inputs into a risk profile, tolerance, capacity and required. And what we got was as much... Um, as you would have guessed if it would have been random. It was basically a third each. So each of the advisors carried in to the application of their professional judgment, their own biases. Some thought risk tolerance was the most critical. They didn't want clients to be to be outside it. Others said, I tell the client uh, what risk they need to take and I hold them honest to that so that they don't bail out at the wrong time. And the third group said, well, the critical issue is obviously risk capacity. I need to be able to work with a client and have them confident that they can manage um, the worst cases of, uh, of market volatility, um, particularly in retirement. So there is no um, easy answer. There is just the answer you and the client have agreed is appropriate to their needs. And you have obviously carefully recorded. Now, that brings us to myth 10, which is some people out there, enterprises and planners, believe that they satisfy their compliance, legal and duty of care obligations by using any old risk tolerance test, even if it was written on the back of a coaster after a long boozy lunch at the pub. Now, Paul, the people who enforce compliance, legal and duty of care obligations might disagree with that. Well, up until now, many of them didn't. Um, the, the challenge is, of course, having enough expertise and enough, uh, enough vim and vigour to take on the enterprise sales and uh, a marketing department who, who view um, compliance um, often as uh, a way of debilitating the business and discourage um, the use of any form of, uh, of science and rigour because it may actually take more than the three or four nanoseconds that uh, the um, procedures allow. Um, the, the English regulator is perhaps the clearest on this, uh, it, and they basically say if you use a tool, any tool, and it can be your own professional judgment um, or some form of risk test, um, what you need to do is do a rigorous due diligence on it, make sure it works, make sure it's valid, make sure it's reliable, but it also recognises that everything that is a test in the marketplace um, is going to have weaknesses. So it says uh, make sure you recognise those weaknesses and you build into your systems 
an ability to uh, to overcome them. So let me give you an example in our case of how we did that. We have a 25 question test and uh, often advisors say um, and their managers, that's too many. Our clients aren't uh, incapable of spending the 15 minutes um, it takes to do the test. Will you give a shorter one? And we built a shorter one. It's a 12 question test. But what we built into it were a couple of extra scoring algorithms so that if there were consistent differences, that is, if a client had a number of uh, varied answers that weren't on average, that added up on, in, in, in aggregate to be average, but were high, low, high, low in a number of cases, um, it would pick those out and say that this client's calculation of risk tolerance wasn't appropriate. Um, their inconsistencies, it's an inconsistency alert in our case, um, would say that this client needed to either redo the test or needed to be given a stern talking to so that uh, the, uh, the advisor could actually work out what biases the client had and make sure that the recommendation took those into account. Now, you've been telling this story for 20 years and for much of that time, regulators weren't paying any attention, but now they are. And I think the trend might be running towards the consumer now, away from, from insti financial institutions that, that might ill-advise them, which they could do 20 years ago without, without any hope of being, being held to account. If we came back in 10 years from now, do you think there'll be rigorous standards around risk tolerance and how to assess it and how to use it? Um, I, th I think so. Um, uh, every time there's a market correction, um, the regulators um, uh, reflect the uh, the instructions that come from their political masters, who uh, who draft ever more rigorous um, um, protections for consumers. So it, th 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 there's a uh, there's a very glib line that says not only do we get politicians, we deserve we get the regulation we deserve. Um, um, I looked with some interest that um, the uh, the highest number of complaints in the first half of 2017 in the UK, which amounted to just over 950,000, were complaints about unsuitable advice. Now, that is in a market where the uh, volatility is relatively low. So you can rest assured that sometime in the next while, when the next market correction occurs, there will be a huge number of increased complaints. The regulator will look and say, ah, clearly unsuitability is, is, is a primary issue. Risk tests, amongst other things, have not been done with uh, appropriate rigor. Let us impose some further um, disciplines on the process. So I think um, regulation will increase. Um, we've always argued that uh, regulation is the lowest common denominator and is often very poorly articulated and even more poorly enforced. And it is better to take a, uh, a more disciplined approach and actually do it properly. But uh, I might go to my grave with that line. Paul Resnick from Plan Plus. I'm sure we have more of this story to tell. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Craig. 
And folks, to find out more about the Finometrica Risk Profiling Toolkit, go to riskprofiling.com. While to find out more about those advice tools, Plan Plus Planet and My Plan Plus, go to planplus.com. And that wraps up our financial planning conversation. Thanks so much for making us a part of your busy day. I'm Craig Saunders. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.